Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a guest I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, Jeremy Carl wrote a really interesting uh, article a few months ago. I think it was actually based on a speech he gave, but uh, I've been thinking about it a good bit since I read it, and I want to have him on to talk about it a little bit. Jeremy uh, has worked in the Trump administration. He's a senior fellow over with the Claremont Institute. Jeremy, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Oren. Absolutely. So the article you have was titled uh, A Nation of Settlers, Not Immigrants, right? It's it's about kind of this misnomer or maybe not a misnomer, maybe a purposeful reinterpretation of kind of the American founding in the American identity. You hit a lot of different points in it, and we're going to go through a lot of those. But before we get uh, started with that, can you explain a little bit for people who aren't familiar, your background, how you got involved in politics, what you're doing <laughs> now? Sure. Well, that actually goes back. I've had a sort of a circuitous career. Um, I uh, was very involved in campus politics as an undergrad at Yale uh, more years uh, ago than I will care to admit, perhaps on this uh, podcast. Uh, but then I got uh, involved as uh, got into sort of the Internet 1.0 business way back in the the earliest uh, days of the Web. And I did that for a while and then uh, sort of semi retired from doing that. And through a sort of circuitous series of uh, steps, got back into uh, public policy, particularly kind of environment and resource policy, which is actually my my academic training um, uh, in graduate school. And uh, in fact, what I did in the Trump administration, so not really uh, directly related to this, but uh, sort of over that time, and I'd sort of been a centrist uh, in college, sort of maybe tending towards center left, my politics had kind of moved further and further rightward, and I wound up at the Hoover Institution uh, over at Stanford, which is a public policy think tank that that probably some of your uh, viewers are aware of. And, uh, you know, from there kind of wound up in the Trump administration and uh, ended up relocating to Montana because uh, while Hoover was a great place, uh, I just couldn't deal with California anymore and uh, wound up uh, here with the Claremont Institute uh, working remotely. And Claremont is a a wonderful group for those of your uh, viewers who uh, don't know it um, and uh, a think tank that just really lines up very well with kind of my views of the founding and, and America and uh, certainly encourage folks to to check out what we're doing. Yeah, I'm talking to so many people who have just fled California to New York here recently. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you guys are great, but uh, but make sure the rest of your uh, your cohorts stay back in the, the states of their origin. OK, don't let anyone else out of there. I, I fully appreciate it. I, I, I hasten to say, uh, and this is actually important in Montana. Well, a I was a pre-COVID uh, person who fled California. Mm. Secondly, I'm not a Californian. I grew up in North Carolina, and uh, oh, okay, all right. I'd only been most recently in California for work, um, but yes, uh, it's actually encouraging the number of political refugees that I have uh, met during my few years in Montana now. Um, uh, so those folks are allowed to come, and uh, the liberals can stay right back where they uh, belong in California. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good to know you weren't born of uh, you know iniquity. And, and out, <laughs> no, out no, no. I have no hereditary blood guilt. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your piece here. So the the first thing I think that a lot of people I, I know when I was listening to conservative talk radio and stuff, you know, and was younger and everything. I always heard we're a nation of immigrants, right? This isn't a left-wing position, right? This is this is something that we regularly hear on right-wing conservative uh, radio and, and programs as well. So are, are we a nation of immigrants? And if not so, why? What, what's up with that? Well, we're not. And But I actually do mention later in the piece that that there's a reason why perhaps you do hear this, although increasingly maybe less frequently on on true conservative talk radio or somewhere else, but that there is something appealing about it. I mean, it's it's a it's a noble thought if we don't take it too far. I mean, it's the idea that uh, when you become a citizen, at least, that you have to be just as invested as the American in the American prospect, even if you just uh, you know got off the 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 plane from Burkina Faso, as if your you know family landed on Plymouth Rock. And I think you know that that kind of meta ideology is something that we would like to encourage in folks. That we have here, but in deciding who should be here, that's not necessarily the case. It's it's not historically the case that we were a nation of immigrants. We were really a nation of settlers historically, um, and you know immigration has been a part of that um, and increasingly a part of that. But it's not innate to the American project, and that's really what my piece was about. 
So what would be the difference between an immigrant and a settler, right? They both come here, right? They're both, they're both, they're both moving from one place to another. Why is this such an important difference when it comes to kind of the identity and understanding of kind of what America is? Sure. Well, uh, you know, the basic distinction is that an immigrant is somebody who's coming to join an existing society. And a settler is somebody who's coming to build a new society. And if you look at folks like the pilgrims and even people who came for, for decades, if not hundreds of years in many cases, after them, they were not there to join the society of Native Americans, again, for better or for worse. And it's not, of course, that they weren't interacting with the Native American society. And you can actually read a lot. If you read about the Jamestown colony, for example, I mean, there was a lot of the the justification for doing that. And the people who funded it were there to Christianize the Native Americans. Um, which uh, you know today would be sort of considered very un-PC, but back then was kind of considered a very uh, sort of noble pursuit. But again, there was always a distinction between the European society that they were trying to build and the native society that had been there. And so we really did build this, this settler society. And this is something I actually agree with a number of leftist historians on who, who kind of make this same point. Uh, and then at some point we got built out enough that um, we became depending on where the immigrant was coming or where the settler was coming, we become a mix of settlers and immigrants at some point. Um, but it really wasn't until the frontier closes in 1890, um, and that's, that was an official de declaration from the Census Bureau, that's after 200, almost 300 years, honestly, of, of European settlement in the Americas, that we really can begin to talk about us, at least in some sense, as a nation of immigrants, although I would argue, still, we weren't fully a nation of immigrants. We just might not have been uh, you know, fully a nation of settlers anymore. Is part of this problem a the unease with maybe the idea of conquest, right? Like they, that's something that's really icky for people today, even though it's just the reality of humans throughout history. It used to be something people sang songs about and and held deep pride about in their right. in their ancestors, and because kind of our current understanding of you know, kind of the soft power is the only way that people can control an area that now we can't have this identity because it's, it's, you know, passe. I think that's a really uh, important and incisive point. Um, I think that is a lot of what's going on, that we're very uncomfortable with the notion of settlement, with the notion of conquest, with the notion that one people might, in some sense, replaced in other people, although, of course, we see that happening right now with a lot of uh, white Americans, I'd argue, in our current immigration policy. But in fact, historically, as you point out, I mean, this wasn't a view, and it, actually, it's sort of amusing because uh, I, I envy those of you who have not been present uh, when a land acknowledgement is given. This is something that that uh, just unhappily appeared on my radar in the last couple years, and I, I, I have only had once to uh, participated in over my objections, but it's this notion that, uh, you know, particularly in, and in Montana, we actually have a lot of Native Americans and a lot of Native history, um, but that, you know, you begin your public meeting by acknowledging that you're on the tribal territory of, and then you kind of name the, the various groups. But of course, the historical reality, if we're not just engaging in propaganda, is that those groups just stole the property from somebody else, or they took it by conquest, right? And that is the nature of history, certainly pre-modernity. Um, and so, you know, that's, again, I think it's just a reality that does make a lot of people uncomfortable. Well, it's because you're cl too close to Canada. That's why I ended up with the, the land uh, acknowledgement. But yeah, <laughs> it's really it's really hard for people, I think, uh, to, uh, you know, property is not musical chairs. You know, the ownership of territory is not, you know, who just whoever ends at the end, you know, standing there at the end of the song gets to control it. It has always been, uh, you know, part of the human condition is that it must be, you know, won or defended through violence. And this is just how every nation ever exists. I think also part of this comes from maybe the, the a lot of the, the idea of freedom, right? Freedom is the central concept of the United States. When I talk to older uh, conservatives, they often have a difficult time with the idea of America as an empire, right? Like, right. like we're different. We're, we're a nation of freedom. We just spread freedom to everyone. And that's why they listen to us. Right. And, and so, so it's a hard thing for them to square the idea that like, no, people came here and they wanted to live here. And so they controlled the area the way people controlled land in time and memoriam. Right. 
and liberty wasn't the key thing when it came to making sure that you had it, de defending the territory from those who wanted to take it from you was. No, that's right. I mean, I'd say, which is not to say, I mean, there were people, certainly if you read the founders and the folks who influenced the founders, they had real and genuine ideas about liberty. And I think it informed sure. uh, their viewpoint for better or for worse at, at times. But it is also absolutely true that before you could have all those happy uh, discussions about liberty, there had to be a lot of, uh, you know, killing and territorial conquest and everything else, or at least, and this is why the Second Amendment is so important, the ability to defend one's liberty by force of arms, ultimately. Um, right. And again, you know, these are things that make uh, particularly a lot of establishment thinkers today um, uh, you know, uncomfortable, but maybe the notion that the globalist American empire is in fact uh, a little bit older than, than some of the critiques uh, might suggest it is. Yeah, and I think it also leads, again, many, many um, conservatives of a different generation to think like all of America's uh, prosperity or all of America's success came simply from like force of argument, right? Like, right. like having a superior lifestyle, having a superior way of life, which of course I think in many ways is true, but that in and of itself was enough to spread across the list. When we say expanding westward, what we mean is marching westward and making sure that we control the land, right? That, that is Absolutely. understood. Yeah. Absolutely. And there were, you know, there were, it was not Terra Nullis. There were of course people here uh, they were not necessarily, depending on where the territory was, uh, thickly populated, but in some cases they were. In some cases, we, like any uh, you know other group of people, made alliances with some of some groups of them against other groups of them, and uh, you know we ultimately happened to, at the end of the day, have uh, superior arms and technology, and and uh, you know arguably as well, uh, you know some some culture and economy that went with that, and so we were able to control the territory, and that was kind of the nature of. The settlement process and that really went on almost till living memory um and certainly you know i see this very acutely in montana where even today i mean i'm 10 hours from the closest city of 250,000 plus and you know you don't have to drive that far outside of my house before you sort of feel like you're back on the frontier um mm. so i think this is it's still a very live concept uh, in the american psyche so one of the things that you talk about your piece also, I think, is the uh, is the concept of m maybe that due to the the idea of a nation of immigrants, many people have the idea that America was always a highly multiracial society. Uh, but you kind of point out that actually it was much more uh, much more homogeneous than most people think of as kind of a historical fact. No, that's correct. And of, of the free population of the United States and independence, as best scholars have been able to determine, it was something like 85% white British. Um, and, you know, there was some Germans and some Dutch, I think, uh, you know, coming in. And of course, the Germans, you could find uh, sort of famously, and people on both sides of the immigration argument tend to point this out, you know, Benjamin Franklin inveighing against his concerns about the Germanization of American culture, if we let too many of these guys... In, but I do think it's important to understand, even just for American history, that the colonists saw themselves up until the very end as British and were kind of demanding their liberties as free British people. And certainly, you know, over time, they began to see themselves perhaps more and more as Americans or at least as uh, representatives of their particular colony. But they definitely did not see themselves as a multicultural melting pot of any type. I mean, that is a a late 19th century, early 20th century invention, uh, at least ideologically, of course. And, and one thing I've seen people kind of bring up, which I thought was always a very interesting point, was actually that the, you know, obviously your your largest minority at that time would have, of course, been African-Americans, unfortunately, many, you know, held as slaves. But what hap has happened over time is the disillusion of the idea that, you know, and thinking that maybe this was always a multiracial society, is that many African-Americans kind of lose their special relationship to having kind of that voice, having that, that uh, large percentage being the other uh, making up the other majority or the, you know, the largest minority in the area and no longer really having that as kind of that admixture changes over the years. Sure. No. And that's interesting. And, and uh, you know, I don't even know, I mean, certainly when I was a, a kid, we learned all about Crispus addicts. I mean, he was like mm -hmm. a guy and he was of course a free African-American who was one of the people killed in the Boston massacre. And it was 
sort of a way, you know, sort of in an early version of multiculturalism 1.0 to say correctly in some cases that, you know, African-Americans, even politically, in addition to obviously the, the labor that they contributed, were part of the American pro pros project from the first uh, and that, you know, they arguably should feel a special kinship to the American project, uh, notwithstanding, obviously, the you know, horrific way that, that many of their ancestors were treated in the slavery regime, but that they they still are deeply rooted in this this country and its history. And I think, you know, when you get away from African-American academics, you know, kind of spouting the same sorts of nonsense that liberal white or liberal Asian or whoever academics um, spout, I think you would actually find a fair bit of that current in their thought of, of feeling extremely American. Um, and feeling that they, you know, have a, a history in this country from time immemorial almost. But it's not the latest intellectual fashion to be true. So you spoke about the shift that eventually kind of came with this, right? We we start seeing the increase of immigration and, and kind of efforts to refocus uh, the story about this. Can you talk a little bit about how and why we saw the big increase in immigration? Sure. Well, let me talk first about kind of some of the actual history of immigration, because I think we mm -hmm. should be a little more explicit. So you had this this clear settlement period, and it's actually fascinating. Something I would recommend to anybody is just pick up some of the even modern accounts of Jamestown or the Pilgrims or anything in 17th century America, certainly. And you realize just, I mean, they were in enormous risk, taking enormous fatalities. I and mean, this could not have been more of a settlement project with incredibly high danger. And this persisted well into the 19th century in some parts of America, certainly where, where I live, that would have been true. I mean, we weren't even really settled until the gold strikes of the 1860s. They um, you know, had the first thin settlement uh, on the ground in Montana. Um, but, uh, you know, then at some point in the 19th century, arguably, things begin to get a little bit more settled in some places. Um, but interestingly, when you look at uh, de Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America, kind of a, a standard text almost of the American project, he doesn't mention immigrants or immigration at all in his book. And as I point out, it's not because there weren't immigrants. Of course, there were immigrants back then. But de Tocqueville, who's writing in the 1830s, he's really, and this is 200, he, we're closer to de Tocqueville in time right now than de Tocqueville was to the original American settlement project. So just with reference to that, we hadn't had at that time the first real mass immigration of sort of non-British origin people to the United States. That happened in the 1840s, particularly with the failures of the revolution of 1848 um, and the Irish potato famine. And then you begin to get, as we push westward, this more mixed society, um, a society that has some people really immigrating into places that are really well settled and a culture that's well defined. And then some people going out into the frontier, which has um, a very rich um, kind of history in the American mind. Um, and it was really only at 1890 that the frontier closes and we begin to have this different kind of conception of who we are and the, the people who come here begin to really become more immigrants than settlers. Does kind of Lincoln's uh, effort to kind of mass draft Irish into the Civil War, you think have a have a particular impact on some of that? Well, there, there, yeah, I mean, this is one thing there's, you can also see things with German immigrants. I, mean, I think one of the fascinating things, and I'm not a, a Civil War historian, won't pretend to be, but I think one fascinating thing that you can absolutely observe, um, predominantly on the Union side, but not exclusively, is that you'll get people who immigrate here and like four years later, they're fighting for the Union or they're fighting for the Confederacy. And when we think of kind of the ideologizing, I think, of um, the Civil War as, you know, being about slavery and these long held things. And I think I mean, really ultimately slavery really was the first uh, primary cause of the Civil War, although you can read other interpretations. But I think it's interesting that immigrants you know, kind of jump in and immediately kind of join one side or the other, depending on where they, they happen to immigrate. Sure. So once we kind of see this big shift, a uh, lot more people coming in, we also see, I think, like you said, um, uh, you mentioned the uh, 
Statue of Liberty and how many people, you know, really tie that so directly to immigration. But actually, that's not really the origin of it and was kind of post hoc added to it. And even though now it's the thing that has become kind of the central icon of it. No, absolutely. And I, I do talk about this in my piece. So, you know, right around the time that we have the frontier being closed a few years before in 1886, I think uh, the Statue of Liberty is uh, put up. Uh, it is a monument to several things. It's to Franco-American friendship, since, of course, the French had helped us out a lot uh, in the revolution. It's a monument to democracy. It's a monument to emancipation of slaves, a few things. But what it was not was a monument to immigration. And the way it became a monument to immigration is kind of fascinating because what you ultimately had was there was a, a woman, Emma Lazarus, who wrote a poem. She was a very established woman in New York society. Um, uh, and uh, she, she writes this poem, The New Colossus, which is what is now engraved on the base of the statue. And it was one of many items that was kind of done to raise money for the building of the statue, for which it required a lot of money. Um, and it was done and it was kind of forgotten about, you know, they, they did this testimonial dinner, I think, where the poem was read and then everybody kind of went home and forgot about it. And then at some point, a few years later, she dies and she's childless and she has a close friend, um, uh, Skylar, or la the last name, and she's of the, the Skylar sisters family, for those of you who've seen Hamilton, is actually the gr great granddaughter of uh, Alexander Hamilton and one of the mm -hmm. Skylars. Um, and she decides that she wants to memorialize her uh, friend, um, Emma Lazarus, and she's a person with a lot of connections in New York society. And so she manages to do this whole campaign, this activist campaign that successfully gets the words to Lazarus's poem, which had been totally forgotten by this point. I don't even know how she chose it. Um, and she uh, puts that on the Statue of Liberty's base. And uh, at the time, of course, you had a huge mass wave of immigrants coming into first Castle Garden and then Ellis Island, and they're passing this statue. And it begins to take on this myth of this this new kind of way of seeing you know, the Statue of Liberty is about immigration. At a similar time, you have uh, folks like Israel Zvankville, who's, I believe, British, actually, but he wrote a play called The Melting Pot. And again, for those of you, at least of my generation, this is how we learned to think about American identity as a melting pot. Um, and he specifically talks about it being a place where the races of Europe, as he put it, are melting and reforming. Um, and so this this kind of broader ideology is kind of in the air at that time, and it causes a kind of redefinition of the Statue of Liberty in the public mind. Now, interestingly, uh, you, you made the, the kind of almost the joke in the piece, which which I thought was pretty funny about uh, these women being kind of proto awfuls, right? Like yeah. <laughs> affluent white women, right? Yeah. Um, and how this was part of kind of the origin of of this fundraising effort and this this interest in in kind of the increase of of immigration in many ways. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and awfuls for those of uh, your viewers who don't know stands for affluent white female liberal. Uh, is a really a wonderful term of a group that uh, seems to cause a, a lot of trouble these days, I'm sad to say. Um, but uh, essentially, uh, so Lazarus was, so she was Jewish, and that sort of played uh, some role in her thinking about uh, the whole statue project, because she was very acutely aware of what was going on in Tsarist Russia, um, and so had been paying attention to that. But as I point out in the piece, she really had a very different, she was not what we would associate as like a, a New York Jew uh, today who, you know, was like fresh off the boat from from uh, Russia or Eastern Europe. She was, in fact, the Jewish equivalent of a Mayflower descendant. Her family had come over in 1654 with the first um, boatload of Jewish immigrants to what became the United States that landed in New York. Um, her family was a wealthy and established, successful family that uh, mixed at the highest levels of New York society. And that was how she knew the uh, Schuyler. You know, they were they were sort of in the same social class, the same social milieu. Uh, I touched on Schuyler's family history a little bit. Similarly, also unmarried, also uh, you know, no children. And maybe she's looking at these poor, tired, huddled masses and feeling some sort of maternal instinct uh, for that. And I, you know, I think we see this unfortunately as a trend today in the sentimentalizing of modern immigration policy, but these really were kind of prototype 
uh, offals, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I think that ended up having some consequences uh, for future American immigration policy. Well, and speaking about kind of future immigration policy, you also make a very interesting point in the piece about kind of why the immigration policy, policy why we saw in the 1965 Act hard seller, like why we see this push. And you say that you, you believe kind of Kennedy and his book is a big part of that. And you actually kind of say that there, there's almost a, a Ellis Island coalition um, sure. of, of those who kind of wanted immigration to be seen favorably. No, that that's absolutely right. I mean, you have a combination of Jewish and Catholic ethnic interests. And I, I sort of document, and again, you know, this is not to to cast aspersions on anybody. And in fact, I make the point in the piece that there are all sorts of extremely rational reasons why these groups thought in the way they did, whether it was the Kennedys who, even though they were, they were so-called lace curtain Irish. So, you know, they were from the upper crust of Boston Irish society. But if you're familiar with the sort of history of Boston, there was a whole level above them, the Boston Brahmins who were kind of the old pilgrim stock who would want nothing to do with you know an Arvist family like the Kennedys, um, no matter how much money they had, or even if, uh, in the case of, of Rose Kennedy, his wife, the the father had been mayor of Boston, and uh, Kennedy's father had been uh, ambassador to the UK, so a very established family, but still uh, not kind of meeting the social mark uh, in Boston society. So you understand that feeling on the Catholic side and on the Jewish side. Uh, you had an understandable fear of things had not gone very well for them um, in unified ethnic countries in Europe. And that had um, obviously culminated with the Holocaust in, in uh, Europe. And so that was very fresh in uh, folks' mind. But you have this, uh, this kind of combination of, of essentially, and, and Italians are a big piece of this too, um, kind of the book, A Nation of Immigrants, which nominally was written by Kennedy, but was really written by a Jewish aide of Kennedy's, was pushed quite overtly by the Anti-Defamation League, the major Jewish civil rights organization, and then reissued after Kennedy's assassination to even more publicity in the context of the debate over Hart Seller, which is basically what gave us our modern immigration policy and Hart himself, um, Senator Philip Hart from Michigan, was the grandson of Irish Catholic uh, immigrants and Emmanuel Seller, uh, grandson of Jewish immigrants from New York, and a, a guy who'd been in Congress for, for 40 years at that point, more than that, actually, I think, and had been part of the only congressman objecting to our original, more restrictionist 1924 Immigration Act um, at a time. Uh, and so he'd been just, this had been a personal issue for him for decades. So for those who are unfamiliar, what changed with the Hart Seller Act? Like what, what was the big change as opposed to the immigration policy in the United States before that act? Well, the, there were a number of changes, but I'd say the most fundamental change was an emphasis on family reunification. And actually, if you go back and read the Hart Seller debate, which I, again, I would encourage folks to do who are really interested in understanding the immigration debate more deeply, you know, it's fascinating how the proponents through some combination of just lying through their teeth or I think genuinely getting some things wrong in an innocent fashion. Everything the liberals said that was not going to happen with Hart Seller happened with Hart Seller. We had a massive change demographically in who immigrated here. And the real um, kind of linchpin of that was ultimately that there was a focus on family reunification. And there had been a feeling, and before this we'd sort of had frankly, ethnic quotas, you know, or at least quasi-ethnic quotas that had to do with um, the percentage of the population you were at the 1910 census, I think, determined kind of, you know, what your country quota was. And again, you know, today you're a very bad person for suggesting that there could be anything reasonable or legitimate about this. But at the time, this seemed a very reasonable thing to do. And I would actually argue it's a totally legitimate uh, thing to do for uh, people who said this is, you know, what we're doing is for ourselves and our posterity in their founding document to say, hey, you know, we actually are doing this for ourselves and our posterity and not folks from from different parts of Europe, let alone uh, folks from different parts of the world. Um, so anyway, they, they'd had this sort of thing. And but what ended up happening was for a variety of reasons, it ended up not maybe helping as much uh, the Poles and the Italians and other groups that they thought it would. But you began first to have 
real uh, mass immigration from uh, Latin America, from Mexico, uh, which of course we'd always had. And of course, some parts of the US prior to the Mexican-American War had been parts of Mexico mm-hmm. uh, or the border crossed them, as some of the uh, the activists like to say. Um, but but this was a three and a half percent of the population and 80 percent of them uh, before Hart Cellar were U.S. born. So, in fact, you know, many of these guys in uh, New Mexico and Arizona, folks who grew up with my mom there back in the 1940s, uh, you know, very long established in the United States at that point, or really had a, a sense of themselves as American. But we had this big um, change. And then also because of how family reunification was put into law, we opened up chain migration, which essentially means that you know, you become a citizen and then all sorts of other people with various relationships to you um, become citizens or at least or become eligible to become citizens. And that's what's really led to the mass change in uh, who we've been bringing over since Hart Seller. And I'd say that's the fundamental change in immigration law. So let's go ahead and bring this up to the current day now that we're familiar with all the background. One of the questions you ask at the beginning of the piece is, you know, how does this benefit the regime, right? Why do people want this to be the narrative? Why do they want this to be a nation of immigrants and not a a nation of settlers? And so I guess the question is, how does it benefit the current regime? What interests is it forwarding for them? Sure. Well, I think one one thing, and I'll, I'll actually say the more provocative thing first, which is I think it ultimately sets the stage well, it does two things. Maybe I'll say the less provocative thing first. The less provocative <laughs> thing is to say, um, if we're a nation of immigrants, it's fundamentally immoral and illegitimate that we would attempt to restrict immigration in some way. And of course, again, I point out in my piece, we have not always had uh, a mass immigration culture. I mean, between when we passed this law in 1924 and Hart Seller, we had very little immigration. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we almost had a, a unifying of American ethnic identity at this point, as all of these different uh, European groups began to see themselves as more American um, during during that time. And so their you know, immigration went up and down. The, the census uh, right before my birth uh, was 4.7% immigrants. And most of these folks were older people from Europe at that point. So we really, at this point, we're not an immigrant uh, society, although clearly um, immigration played a much larger role if you were to go back to 1900 or 1910, the kind of heyday of Ellis Island immigration. So I think that's one point, and that's maybe the less provocative point. I'd say the more provocative point is to say it really sets um, the stage to kind of, and there's a little bit of a two-step involved here, but to ultimately justify expropriating whites over time. I mean, I think that is, the justification, and I'm actually writing a book right now uh, for Regnery on the rise of anti-white discrimination and racism. And so I'm thinking a lot about immigration. I have a chapter or two on immigration in the book, uh, thinking about that. Um, but but essentially, you begin to tell this story of A, we're a nation of immigrants, B, kind of the whole story, the whole American story was really just you know us stealing from other people. And then, oh, by the way, you guys are really bad guys. And, uh, you know, 300 years ago or 200 years ago, you were uh, mistreating African-Americans and uh, you were mistreating Hispanics. And so now uh, all these assets that you have, we're going to come for them. And I think um, to varying levels of overtness, that is the second piece of the agenda. But of course, to do that, you have to kind of fundamentally transform to use Obama's term, you have to fundamentally transform American demographics. And I think that they have um, done a really good job of that. And I think the realistic challenge for the right at this point in attempting to counter that wave, I mean, there are folks on the furthest reaches of the right who, you know, maybe have some more nefarious ideas that I would not uh, subscribe to for how you might counter this. But what I would say is we need to go back to a more unified American ethnic identity. And I think the way that we kind of do this over time is the same way we did it from 1924 to 1965, which is you get immigration pretty close to net zero on a basis. And then when you do that, you begin to have you know more intermarriage and more people thinking of themselves as Americans and not having uh, you know as deep ties to some other country. And I think from there, we have a basis 
to go forward. Now, I think that's a really challenging um, task for the right. I mean, it's hard. I don't kid myself that this is going to be something that's doable. But I think really at this point, this is the only way forward for us if we don't want to become, you know, kind of in the words of Roosevelt, you know, kind of this uh, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, this kind of squabbling group of nationalities sort of fighting over this fixed pie and seeing who can take what from whom and who can expropriate what from whom. And I, I'm worried that in a society that ultimately views itself as multi-ethnic, we have a lot of history that suggests not specific to America, but just in the world, that that's exactly what will happen. Yeah, if you're going to get some kind of identity or ethnogenesis, you kind of can't let every single person in, right? At some point, you right. have to let the people here can, you know, actually work together and create an identity together rather than yeah. constantly shift with each wave. Right. And, 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 you know, there needs to be like, also, we need to stop taking statues down. We need to, you know, be very aggressive about defending the founders. We need to say, look, for everybody, again, whether you got off the boat from wherever you did or whether your family's been here for 400 years, you know, we need to look at the founders. We need to look at Lincoln. We need to look at these guys as, you know, people we should be proud of. And this is not to say that we are going to some sort of naive Parson Weems, you know, biography of George Washington version of history, or even a, a late 19th century version of history, where we can't be critical of the things that were not done well, the things that were done wrong, the crimes that were committed. I mean, all those things were there, all those things were were part of our history. We can talk about that. But really, the the net product is a rather remarkable country. And that's why people have wanted to come here. I mean, that's why so many people want to come here. And we we need to be simultaneous to, to really um, protecting our borders. We need to be unapologetic about our heroes. And, uh, you know, that's that's in, in balance who I think those guys were. So I, I think, like you said, this is a huge task for the right. And I think it's very obvious from the fervor around Trump, his ability to storm in and and really wrestle the base completely away from the establishment for the time he was in the spotlight, that there is a deep um, a desire for this. There, there's a large appetite for this kind of movement uh, among the GOP base, but that doesn't translate at all to almost any of the GOP politicians and even much of the you know uh, conservative punditry. So how does this move? How, how do we get this from the average base into action by people who are supposed to be representing the base? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm blackpilled, but I'm not that blackpilled. I would say, <laughs> I mean, as somebody who's worked on this issue, you know, has been writing about immigration for, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years, maybe, I don't know, I'd have to go back and look when I wrote my, my first piece and certainly been following it longer than that. Um, I would say, I mean, the, the space to talk in a serious way about immigration and the national interest on the right, at least, has just blown up dramatically. And mm -hmm. Trump definitely gets some credit for that. I mean, part of it was just him being a political and ideological entrepreneur and and having a, a sense of, you know, kind of where the base was in a way that the Mitt Romneys of the world and certainly the John McCain's of the world did not. Um, but but part of it was even before Trump, I mean, there were there were more ability to 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 sort of talk about these things. And so I do think there's more of an appetite. I think there is a a more serious constituency within the party that wants to do this. I think also as we've become a less corporate party and there are, there are problems with us being so disassociated with uh, the business community because we do need a, a kind of group of the elite that is on our side. I think this is a part of power. That's something I've written about separately. But, but um, as we're less tied to the business community, I think that faction is strengthened, but it's definitely not every Republican. And maybe it's not even if you put a gun to their head and, and made them tell you the truth, most Republican office holders, at least, although I do think it's most Republican voters. Um, but, but I think there's more opportunities and I think that that story gets better for us. And unfortunately it gets better for us as the facts on the ground get less as, as you have at worst, as you have Biden, like, I mean, frankly, and I'll, I'll say it, you know, secret service can come after me, but openly tre treasonously in my view, like intentionally not enforcing the border. And that, and that's what he's doing. And he knows that these asylum claims are, are virtually all legitimate and he's just choosing to, to let the border be open. Um, and, you know, he's finally p pushing back on that a little bit because um, through, you know, us shipping folks off to New York City and other blue states, there's beginning to be, get some political pressure even within his coalition 
Um, but I'd say, you know, I think the other kind of piece of good news here is even in groups that, um, you know, in a lot of ways would not be seen as the historic American core, there is a desire to identify themselves as Americans and with Americanness, not among the activist elite there, but just among the common people. And I see you see, you see this really acutely in a place like South Texas, where the Republicans have now become very competitive. I mean, for those of you who spent uh, time down in the, the RGV, the Rio Grande Valley, these are 97% Hispanic communities. And in many cases, you know, uh, Spanish speaking first communities right across the border from Mexico. Um, but there's a real feeling of not just cultural traditionalism, but in many cases and increasingly a sense of identifying with America and the American project and wanting to think of themselves um, as American. And so I think that that is encouraging. And if we do certain things with the law, for example, um, stop making it uh, legally advantageous to identify as Hispanic uh, because you get a bunch of jobs and whatever, but you uh, instead kind of put everybody on equal footing, you may see over time, as we've seen with Italians, as we've seen with other ethnic groups that maybe, you know, we're not seen as fully American in the the kind of establishment public mind when they showed up, these guys may begin to um, identify with the American majority over time. And, and that, uh, you know, is kind of creating that American ethnicity. And that's not a perfect solution for a variety of reasons that are kind of beyond the scope of uh, what we can get into in one podcast, but it's a heck of a lot better than where we are today. And I think it offers, uh, you know, a reasonable path forward. It's, I, I'm sort of reminded of the the farmer who, you know, some guy gets very lost on a rural road and he finally pulls over and asks the farmer how he's going to get to New York City. And the farmer thinks for a little while and he says, well, I wouldn't start from here. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't start from here either. But given that, hey, we're here, um, I think there are, with a lot of work um, and some luck and some courage, you know, there are viable pathways forward as long as we realize the ideology behind what's really motivating our opponents and what really their goals are. Yeah, I've, I've got a, a whole bunch of questions out of that. So I'm trying to think of where, where to start. So I guess my first one would be, we do know that like actually um, like Sheila Jackson Lee is actively trying to make it illegal to discuss this problem. Right. Sure. So, so this is something that uh, while you do see more and more, I think people willing to engage with it. Um, obviously the left isn't going to make this easy on anybody, no. but, but it, it is actively more difficult to have this discussion in public and, you know, on purpose. Right. Right. Oh no, absolutely. And you more and more, um, kind of folks in the conservative movement will need to fully disassociate themselves from the institutions of the left to kind of make, to create a space where we're more comfortable in talking about this at a elite or semi-elite level. I mean, for me, you know, when I was at Stanford, when I was at Harvard, it's just, you know, I could do this, but it was, you know, it was the turd in the punch bowl, right? It just, it wasn't right. acceptable. Um, so, I mean, part of this is, consolidating and that means consolidating geographically but i think just as much it means consolidating professionally culturally um taking over certain institutions in a way that that folks like chris rufo are trying to do um so that we we have our our places where we have our space but you touched on sheila jackson lee and i did tweet about her a little bit i mean and she's a great example in that she she is i mean she's trying to forbid and in particular white people from talking about a lot of the issues around this and this is not some, I mean, she's a horrible person for lots of reasons that even have nothing to do with her views sure, on this. Sure, yeah. But uh, and as well documented, even by people who I don't agree with. But I think the point is there's a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, she's just some marginal, unsophisticated, you know, inner city politician, whatever. No, I mean, she has a degree from Yale and a, another degree from UVA law, which is an outstanding law school. This is a person who in many ways has, uh, imbibed a lot of elite thinking on these issues mm -hmm. and is parroting it out more aggressively and obnoxiously than some. But but I don't necessarily know that there's that much distinction between what Sheila Jackson Lee is saying and what a lot of other people on the left are thinking. So the second part of that I wanted to get to was you mentioned Biden and his actions and them being intentional uh, do you really think Biden is making those decisions? Uh, like, who who is you know his advisors? Barack Obama yeah. puppeting this thing? Like, what what 
Well, He's I'm not sure like Tucker or some of my friends yeah, 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 on yeah, Twitter enough. who I love. I mean, I love Tucker, to be clear. I mean, he's, he's a godsend. But um, look, anybody who's watched Joe Biden, I mean, even from my own youth, I remember Joe Biden. He'd been around politics forever. But even go back 20, 30 years and you watch Joe Biden and you watch Joe Biden today and he's clearly diminished dramatically. Yeah. OK, but I also don't think he's you know, other than our fun and saying so rhetorically, I mean, he's not drooling into his ice cream at this point, okay? He is, um, he's aware of what's going on. He knows darn well what his immigration policy is uh, for the most part. And I think, you know, the deep state is always in control of the government at some effect, even when there are people a lot more a capable than Biden who are nominally running it. And I'm sure the deep state is running the government even more under Biden. Um, but at the same time, if Biden wanted to stop this, if he really cared at all, he would stop it. And it would. You know, you you put back the Remain in Mexico policy under Trump and you just start deporting people. And his own base might scream, or at least some of them. Everybody on the right would find a strange new respect for Joe Biden. And uh, we'd go forward. And, you know, this is not above uh, Joe Biden's limited intelligence quotient or, uh, you know, capabilities right now. He, he he understands that. Now, I'm sure that there are people even further down the chain who are further, you know, just happy to thwart whatever instincts Biden might have to do anything reasonable here. But ultimately, he's the president. He understands what's going on and he's he's choosing things to be this way. Fair enough. We, we might disagree on that one, but uh, but uh, a reasonable opinion to be sure. And the final thing I wanted to pick out of kind of the, the the things you had said there, you talked about the relationship with the right in corporate America. And of course, you know, this is famously cozy for a very long time, uh, I think very unhealthily so as uh, corporate America is, I think, pretty clearly more than fine with kind of eviscerating the country. Um, yeah. In fact, it, it might be a key to their in, in extended profit margin. But you say at the same time, you know, you do need kind of friends in this, these elite institutions. A lot of people have said that basically, well, Americans, they're not having kids anymore. So if you don't have this mass immigration, then the economy just collapses, the social structures collapse, and, you know, we, we just have a, a horrible problem on our hands. If you have business interests and you have kind of the, this economic interest entirely tied up in the free flow of immigration into the United States, but you also need business interest to be on your side in order to do anything about the immigration, feels like we're kind of in a bind here, huh? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, look, I have five kids, so I have a personal uh, investment in view in this particular issue. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think we're not going to rebuild America with somebody else's kids. That doesn't mean that nobody else's kids who are not American in 2022 or 2023, excuse me, could ever, you know, come over here and be part of the American story, no matter what talents and skills they bring. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting that um, kind of using mass immigration as an excuse for, well, we've got a civil civilizational death wish and we've moved away from wanting to have kids ourselves. So let's just import uh, a bunch of people from other countries who will do our dirty work and maybe have kids uh, is not a really winning strategy. And you can talk uh, to the ancient Romans about how that went for them. And they're yeah. certainly not uh, the only group for whom uh, that becomes an issue. So I think there are all sorts of things. I actually just was tweeting about this today that we could be doing to encourage Americans to have bigger families than uh, we're doing um, as far as uh, material things that they will not uh, totally solve the problem, but they would certainly help address the problem. Um, so I think that's thing one. And uh, thing two, it just becomes very destabilizing. These businesses come in, uh, they bring in uh, these, these people, you know, they're happy to undercut American wages. Um, and uh, again, that in itself becomes a cause of ethnic friction of various types. Um, and, you know, it's just we have to we have to take on corporate America. And I think we also have to be realistic. I wrote uh, an article uh, toward a Republican counter elite in the American conservative that uh, for some of you who are uh, interested in some of my writing beyond this kind of touches on some of these um, issues. But I think uh, sort of more broadly, what we need to be thinking about is um, being at absolute war with business is probably not a totally viable going forward uh, proposition for the Republican Party, because for a variety of reasons, I think that is likely to be to some degree 
um, a natural constituency for us versus any left-leaning party. But what, so what you have to do is we can't let them do what they're doing now. So you have to manipulate the legal and cultural environment, particularly the legal environment, so that you create a different set of incentives for businesses where they are incentivized to raise wages, you know, where that is viable and makes sense, you know, do things in America, you know, do all sorts of things to reorient corporations toward behaving in a patriotic fashion. And again, I don't think that it's this is some sort of impossible, weird utopian pipe dream. There are some very practical things folks like Josh Hawley have um, suggested we do that can can address these issues. So again, I, I think it's it's challenging, but by no means impossible that we could really um, make progress on something like that. Not exactly related, but kind of related just because what you said there had me thinking about it a bit. Is is the this the massification of the corporations like the real problem? Like the the fact that you've proletarianized the middle class and that they they can't things are so deregionalized and so centralized means that these corporations are motivated to kind yeah. of plug into these global networks. Like, is there any way to is that a solvable problem or is that an inevitable thing? Will scale always win out in this? Yeah, I mean, I don't think mass globalization in the way that we've done it is inevitable. And I think in many ways, Trump was trying to push back against that. You know, by the way, I'm not suggesting that we go back to autarky again, either. I mean, there are there's a, a fine balance to be drawn. Um, there are benefits that we get, uh, including peace benefits from interacting in general cooperatively with um businesses in other countries and other countries generally with trade. Um, I'm I'm generally, maybe I'm enough of an old-fashioned Republican or old-fashioned conservative that I don't um, view those things as inimi inherently inimical to what we might want to do here. But that's a far difference than I, I had a colleague uh, at Hoover, uh, a guy named Michael Boskin, actually a personally very nice guy, but he, he kind of infamously said at one point, uh, he'd been uh, Bush one's uh, head of his Council of Economic Advisors, that it doesn't really matter whether the U.S. makes computer chips or potato chips. Um, and I would argue, well, no, yeah, it does matter. And I think that we're beginning to think about, okay, maybe we shouldn't have uh, offshored all of our manufacturing to China. And maybe for a lot of these key things, um, this sort of stuff needs to live in uh, if not just the U.S., but in the U.S. and other friendly countries. And that reshoring opportunity, which, by the way, is a great opportunity for a new business constituency, is also something that could be tremendously useful for the American middle class, American folks who are involved in manufacturing and other people who were decimated as we hollowed out the middle class in the era of peak globalization. So again, I think not trying to go back to zero, not trying to go pretend that there are other countries and that we can't trade with them, but just really moderating our path, you know, dialing back some of the stuff we've done with China could dramatically change uh, the incentives for businesses in terms of the sorts of things they did. Like maybe we should make some antibiotics here just in case yeah. China doesn't want to ship them all over when we need them in the moment. Absolutely. And computer chips. And again, unfortunately, we're seeing computer chips. Um, you know, there's a long lead time associated with that, but but it's great. You know, anything that's a key commodity, even ag commodities to some degree, you know, if we think about having them here, then all of a sudden there are new business opportunities and new business elites that will emerge from our having done that. And they will tend to be uh, have more patriotic incentives than the current globalist business elites do. So again, I think that um, without trying to completely undo the last 50 years or whatever, which is not realistic, um, but if we if we undo the worst half of it, um, we would change a lot of incentive structures. Well, you know, if you if you keep the uh, graphics cards flowing, you'll have the gamers on your side, and that's, that's <laughs> really all you need at the end there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
All right, guys. Well, we've got through most of what we're going to talk about here. So we're going to turn to the Super Chats in just a second. I see we've got a few stacking up. But before we do, Jeremy, obviously this piece was over at the American Mind, but I know your stuff has kind of appeared all over the place. Is there anything people should look for? Do you got something coming up? I know you said you're writing a book, but anything uh, else that people should be looking out for? Yeah, well, when my book comes out, which is a while from now, it's still got a ways to go, but but absolutely buy that. Um, not just because you should buy books, but because it encourages publishers to publish these sorts of controversial books. Uh, but uh, my my work you can find at the American Mind, American Greatness, uh, Newsweek, the American Conservative, Claremont Review of Books. Um, I'm sure uh, I am 1776. I'm sure I'm forgetting a number of other oh, Federalist. Uh, other publications. I apologize in advance to those publications. Uh, be assured that you are fully loved by me. Um, but uh, you know, I, I do publish. I try to to get in front of a variety of of audiences on the right, so that we're not just um, talking in our fun, maybe dissident or semi dissident milieu, but that we're kind of reaching the great um, unwashed masses. You know, or the folks who don't necessarily because they have actual lives outside of politics. They're not sitting here worrying about or thinking about these, these issues all the time. And I want to be able to reach them. And, and you know, I appreciate you having me on to, to reach uh, the, the Blaze audience and, and, and folks like that. You know, it's, uh, hopefully some of them will, will find this uh, interesting message or discussion as well. Absolutely. So we've got Phil here for $10. And he says, is there any hope for a future for us of the old stock population? Or are we just condemned and waiting for the executioner's axe? I feel like Jeremy talked about this a decent amount, but do you want to address that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I, I think if I felt like I was just waiting for the executioner's axe, I've had five kids. I mean, that's I don't know how to have more of a, a bet on the future ultimately than, than having a family. And maybe one could argue that the collapse in fertility to some degree is related to um, people, some people thinking like Phil uh, about where we are. And it's understandable. I'm not suggesting that Phil is crazy to think that. Um, uh, so, you know, I talked about kind of reconstituting this American identity. I think that's that's one hope. I think aggressively asserting our rights are legitimate. You know, my right as a white guy to not be discriminated against in a variety of ways by the current regime. Um, that's a legitimate right. Now, Sheila Jackson Lee does not want me asserting that right. But I think that um, uh, that right is out there. And there's a little bit of a, the worse, the better, uh, to quote a 19th century uh, Russian revolutionary who influenced Lenin, and that the worst things sort of get for the old stock population of the US, we, we've sort of become minoritized. I mean, literally, we are minoritized in states like California. But even in other senses, we may feel increasingly culturally minoritized, we may begin to kind of view ourselves as a discrete view, a group that has rights like other groups. And will I think it's as much as the, the kind of folks in charge don't want us asserting our legitimate rights, um, I think they're going to ultimately fail in that. I think just the, the dynamics of society, precisely because they're getting um, worse, are going to lead to um, a sort of ethnic organizing and assertion that is going to put a stop to some of the worst abuses. And then we can, I think, work in alliance with, with new stock populations who are kind of interested in an old-fashioned version of the American ideal and American patriotism to hopefully have a winning and viable political coalition. That would be my hope, at least. Uh, and yes, Phil, thank you for your donation. Appreciate that. Uh, Creeper Weirdo here for $10. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Lincoln has a lot of criticism surrounding his actions during his presidency in the Civil War. I understand being unapologetic about Washington or Jefferson, but Lincoln has a lot of baggage. And yeah, I, I didn't want to sidetrack the podcast when you name dropped him there. But uh, do you want to stand for Lincoln here? Is that sure. well, going? I have to be very careful. Claremont has a particular where, where I work has a long <laughs> association with Lincoln, and it gets beyond the whole fellowship the, and everything. Yeah, yeah, the whole the 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 thing of this podcast. I certainly understand. Um, you know, Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus and the other complaints that um, people have about Lincoln. And, and some of those complaints are fair um, and, and reasonable. What I would say is that, um, and again, like you don't need to raise up any founding father or critical American person in history who you don't want to. I mean, that's, that's your right as an American to say, no, actually, um, I don't think... Um, uh, 
that that Lincoln should be the model. But but I would actually argue that, and this is what um, uh, kind of our our founder um, uh, Harry Jaffa wrote in his famous book, The Crisis of the House Divided, about Lincoln. Um, that Lincoln was actually, in general, a, an example of great prudential statesmanship as opposed to um, uh, Douglas, and that in fact he was not, and this is a praise, sort of at excessively attached to abstract principle, um, but that he was very always cognizant of reality on the ground, and that beyond that, um, if you look at some of the things he did, and this is maybe even if you really don't like a lot of the things Lincoln did, I think this can be uh, a thing of um, inspiration for the right. He was not afraid to run roughshod over his political opposition when he perceived that they fundamentally <laughs> endangered the American experiment. And so that's one way you could say it. Yeah. Yeah. He defied the Supreme Court, right? Like sure. I would love, I mean, now we have a pretty good Supreme Court, but I would, one of the core things I think the right should be doing right now is um, in clever legal ways or presumptively legal ways, defying the left-wing judiciary, right? And Lincoln had the courage to do that when he perceived fundamental interests in stake. And so again, whether or not you agree with those particular interests, I think Lincoln's ability to exercise power in the system, especially in the system that is now as far gone as the American system is from where it started, I think is a um uh you know it's an admirable uh kind of uh show of statesmanship and and something that we can actually look at and appreciate regardless of our you know other ideological views the imperial presidency is a american tradition to be yeah sure. yeah <laughs> all right guys well we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up thank you so much for coming by great questions really appreciate the audience and of course i appreciate jeremy for coming on it's a really interesting pre piece he had a lot of very interesting approaches to this subject and i really appreciate him coming by. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, guys. So if this is your first time here, of course, please make sure first you're taking out checking out Jeremy stuff and that you're subscribing to this channel. Also, please, if you have not been listening on podcast and you want to go ahead and listen to this as the as a podcast, working out, mowing the lawn, you know, whatever you're doing, certainly not playing video games. But if you happen to be and you want to listen to this, by all means, go ahead and check out those uh, podcast platforms. It's on all the major ones, Apple, Spotify, everything like that. And if you do go ahead and make sure that you give it a rating and a review, it really helps now that we're kind of getting all this off the ground. Also, uh, thanks to the blaze, I have also made everything over at my Substack, the total state free for everybody that includes the rough draft chapters of the total state book that have been coming out there. So if you're always someone who wanted to read those chapters, but you never got around to, you know, becoming a paid member or something, those are now free to everybody. So you can go ahead and check that out. The link for that is down in the description under this video. But thanks for coming by, by guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.